Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, we'll read the whole chapter and see what God has for us this morning. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me if you take the left hand. I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also will be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. That nowhere, no matter where we land in the Bible, we are met by Jesus. And we pray in this story of Abram and Lot that you would remind us again, as we have sung, that we live by faith and not by sight. Oh Lord, we are so easily distracted. We are so easily entangled by what this world promises. And help us today to live differently, to live counterintuitively to live even counterculturally, even if it means people think we're crazy. 
but we pray that we would live not just by faith and not by sight, but we would live by Christ and not by sight. Open your word to us today. Encourage my brothers here. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's men said together, amen. In my, the church I first pastored, there was an elder who meant a lot to me. There were many elders who meant a lot to me, but this one in particular stands out in my mind this morning in this topic that we're covering because he was famous for this simple expression. No matter what we were dealing with, no matter what problem we came on, no matter what challenge he faced in business or life, he always said the same thing. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We have a financial problem at the church. It's going to be okay. We've got, we got a problem between two people at the church. It's going to be okay. We've got a challenge in the building program. It's going to be okay. His business had a downturn. It's going to be okay. Health problem in his family. It's going to be okay. Now, if you didn't know him very well, you'd say, here's a man who's living uh, happily but very seriously in a state of denial. And sometimes people would say that, you know, we'd be in a meeting, we'd we'd roll out the problem, and he'd say, it's going to be okay. Are you crazy? Did you not hear a thing that we just said? This is a real problem. It's not going to be okay. Yes, he said, it's going to be okay. Now, once you got to know him, you know how he could say it's going to be okay. He had suffered a lot. He grew up in abject poverty and inner city St. Louis, one of ten children, majority of that family lost in World War II. His father was an alcoholic, frequently in his high school days, middle school, high school days, he'd have to go drag his dad out of a ditch and at times save his life, his dad finished life that way. His business had uh, ups and downs and His brother, his best friend, stepped off a curb one day in downtown St. Louis, run over by a bus and killed. And I buried his youngest son when he took his life. So when he would say, it's going to be okay, you'd quickly go through your mind and remember all the things he had been through and say, compared to what you've been through? This is not a great problem, and yes, if you can say that God effectively, if he would follow by saying God is sovereign, God is good, God will lead his people, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Jesus has us. That's how he could say it's okay. He had learned through a very difficult life how to live by faith and not by sight, how to live counterintuitively to circumstances by fixing his eyes on Christ, the ultimate proof of God's faithfulness. Now, some of you may be newer to us or are joining by some other means. They say, now, why are you reading Jesus into this text? Jesus hadn't been mentioned. Christ hadn't been mentioned once in chapter 13. But we know Christ has met us through the stories of Abraham uh, by chapter 12. If you study chapter 12, you know, the, the call that came to him, that uh, call to go to Ur the Chaldees and, and settle there and become a great nation. And God promised, I will bless you to be the father 
of many nations, I will bless your seed, which Paul explains to us in Galatians is not plural but singular because seed refers to Christ. Abraham, in other words, Abram, I'm going to bring through you, your line will bring the Messiah. Christ is going to be a descendant of yours, and that descendant, Christ, is going to be lifted up and become a Savior for the world, for all who look to Him by faith. So everything we're reading about Abram, we know, is God's keeping His faithfulness, keeping His promise to Abram in order to bring us a Redeemer. But remember what happens in between that time he got the call in chapter 12, verses 1 and following, and now chapter 13. There is chapter 12, verses 10 and following, where Abram, there's a famine in the land, and Abram doesn't turn to the Lord. The Lord's just promised him now. The Lord's just promised him, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than stars of the sky. I'm going to bring a Savior that will save the world, and then... Famine comes and, say, and, and Abram says, well, it's up to me to save myself. It's up to me to take care of myself. Nobody else is going to take care of me. I need to go down to Egypt. And he gets down to Egypt and he, and he becomes aware of a powerful king and he has a beautiful wife. He doesn't turn to the Lord about that. He says, I've got to take things in my own hands. I'll figure, I know what I can do. I can tell him he's, she's my sister. And then there's the great disaster that you've already that you've already studied where God in that moment makes Pharaoh wiser than Abraham and drives him out. And Abram now has shaken to his senses, and you can imagine him coming into the Negev with stooped shoulders because he realizes how much he's sinned. What makes the difference in this passage? What makes the difference in Abraham in chapter 13 from chapter 12 it is that God refocuses his attention on a faithful God. And when your attention is focused on a faithful God expressed in Jesus Christ, here's how it changes you. It causes you to live with an open hand. It causes you to avoid hidden dangers. And it brings bountiful blessing. Let me show you where I get that first point, that uh, by living by faith, living by faith with your eyes fixed by faith on a faithful God uh, realized in Jesus Christ. You live with an open hand. Verses 1 to 11, Abram comes into the Negev, and uh, his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen are squabbling with each other. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse, in verse 7, it's mentioned that there are parasites and Canaanites in the, in the land. These are not nice people, Canaanites and parasites. These are these are people who have cruel and bloodthirsty gods. They're not, they're not a peace-loving people. But the herdsmen don't have any problem with them. The herdsmen only have problems with each other. It's, the, it's, Cain, it's Abram's and Lot's herdsmen who are having problems with each other. Isn't that what materialism does? You know, there's, it's a, there's a reason Abram is mentioned in verse 2 as one who is very rich in livestock, silver, and gold, and Lot is as well. Because God is painting a picture here for us of what happens when your eyes get off the Lord and you say, this world is what's most important, and I've got to get what's in this world, and I've got to make my nest secure. I've got to secure life for myself. Nobody else is going to do it for me. I've got to secure myself against the future. 
It's nice to go to church and all, but when push comes to shove, I better take care of myself. And when that becomes your goal, when, when padding your nest and securing your future becomes your goal, when, when gold becomes your God, it drives wedges in relationships. It drove a wedge in the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. He, he dishonored his wife. His drive for protection became more important even than his wife. His drive for amassing wealth became more important than the soul care of Lot. He comes into, he comes into uh, the Negev with stooped shoulders and surely feeling that he is quite the failure. And it changes him. It drives him back to first things. He says, verse 4, to the place where he made an altar at the first. There Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Some of you may be able to identify with Abram. Some of you have perhaps made a real mess of things because your eyes were fixed on the things of this world or what you could do for yourself or making a name for yourself or indulging your pleasure or securing your own future and you've made a real mess of things. You've, you've wounded your wife or wounded your children or you've, you've wounded relationships in the business world. You've made a real mess of things. And you come into this meeting, into a Bible study, into a church, and you're, you have stooped shoulders. You look proud on the outside, but you have stooped shoulders because you say, I've messed up the past and there's nothing for me in the future. I want you to notice what guilt does to Abram. It doesn't cripple him. This guilt, the realization that he had done the wrong thing, that he had put his livestock and cattle ahead of Sarah. By the way, there's a reason that there's an order, a reversal of the names here. So, you know, Sarah and Lot are, are mentioned after the, after the wealth. It's, it's an illustration of how he has turned upside down his priorities. But he comes into this land and he is driven back to the altar where he first met the Lord. Goes back to the altar, to the house of God. He goes back to the first. He repents, in other words. Guilt must lead to repentance, not to despair. Yes, you have a memory of what you've done, how you've failed, how you've messed up in the past, but you must not dwell there. You've been shown where you've gone astray, but you must not dwell on the failure. You must not wallow in the past. That guilt must drive you to grace. Repentance is just turning around, and turning around includes turning away from despair and back to hope in the Lord Jesus. I talked to somebody yesterday who had been wounded very seriously by a family member, he and his sister and mother, wounded people. 
and uh, he uh, had, had made his own mistakes. He had, he had sinned plenty on his own, but there was a lot in his life that he was not responsible for. He had been wounded. He was the victim. But you know how it is that, that uh, you, you're, you're perfectly capable of feeling guilt for things that you had nothing to do with. You know, he said, I, c- I could have done more. I should have done more. And I, I, I reminded him of how the Apostle Paul deals with the past. The Apostle Paul had plenty of reasons, right, to wallow in self-pity and to wallow in his guilt. The Apostle Paul had killed Christians. He had those memories vividly in his mind. But the Apostle Paul never visits his, his past in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, he never goes back to his past as an end in itself. He never goes back to wallow in it. He only recalls his past in order to magnify the grace of Jesus. Okay, this is who I was. But this is what Jesus did for me. This is how much greater Jesus is than my past. So my dear brothers, whatever your past is and however it haunts you and however it plagues you, however you have imitated Abram and mistreated your wife or your children or your relationships and put things and this world ahead of them, okay, remember that past, that's, that's okay. But you must not remember it in the attempt, to, the vain attempt that you can do something about it, that you by punishing yourself enough can, can atone for it. That's illogical, it's never going to happen. The only good of remembering the past is to lay it at the feet of Jesus and glorify Him that He is able to save you despite that and is able to put you on a new road going forward. Guilt leads to repentance, and when, when, when there is repentance, when you have turned away from what only meets you by sight, you fix your eyes on Jesus, and repentance then leads to freedom. Repentance leads to freedom. How does it come out in Abram's life? Instead of Abram trying to amass his fortune, trying to protect against the future, now he says to Lot, well, we've got a whole lot of land here. You pick whatever you want. I'll take what's left over. It's a to- here's, a, here's a different Abram. He is so confident in God's promise that God is going to take him to a land and God is going to fulfill His promise in whatever that land is to bring a Messiah who will save the world. He says He can do it on the right as well as He can do it on the left. So you take it, Lot, whatever you want. Now Lot, on the other hand, you notice in verse 4, or verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Hebrew word translated saw as rahi, and it's used um, several times in Scripture mostly to refer to covetousness. Eve saw the fruit. Um, the 
sons of the king saw the daughters of men, they lusted after them. You studied that strange passage. It's a covetous look. So it's not just that Lot looked over at the east and he said, okay, that looks good. It's that he saw, oh, that can make me a great man. He lusted after that land. He coveted that land. He saw only what it could do for him on this earth, what it could do for him materially. He looked past the wickedness of Sodom. He didn't do any, didn't conduct any due diligence. He didn't take any, didn't um, uh, map any of the assets of Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't do any reconnaissance. He just saw and lusted after it. And the rest is a tragic story. Well, what will fixing your eyes on Jesus, how will it change? It'll, it'll give you a long look for the future and a long look over the past. So you, you, there is something in your mind, I'm quite sure, there's something in your mind and heart today that is just right here and you're saying, I don't know how we're going to get past this. I, I don't know what this bodes for the future. I'm worried about this, I'm afraid of this, I'm, or I'm lusting for this, I've got to have this right now. And when that is your focus, when you're focused only on what is here in the present, you lose the accuracy that's gained by looking to the far distant future and the far distant past. When you look at the far distant past, as Abram must have, you realize, you know, I didn't get myself into this Christian life in the first place. Abram certainly didn't. Abram was out howling at the moon, you know. He was, a, he was a moon worshiper. And God said, Abram, get out of this place. I'm taking you to the promised land. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Through you, the Messiah is going to come. Abram had nothing to do with it. God found Abraham when he wasn't even looking for him. And if you're a Christian this morning, then Christ found you when you weren't looking for him. So you look at that distant past and you say, while you're thinking right now, it's all up to me. If I don't do something here, it's all going to fall. Well, you didn't do anything to get yourself into the Christian life to begin with. Christ, the faithful one, secured you. And then it enables you to look, you must look to the distant future too. Like Abram. God is going to bring the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world through me. He's going, to bring, uh, he's going to bring children from Jews and Gentiles and every race, tribe, tongue, and people. And He's going to make a great nation for Himself in heaven. What then is a pasture in the meantime? A plot of land. He got, a, he got an accurate picture by looking to the distant future and the distant past. And you will only get an accurate picture on whatever is troubling you in the present by looking at the past, past faithfulness of God saving you, and the future faithfulness of God in redeeming the whole cosmos. It'll put this present issue very much in perspective. Well, living with your eyes focused on a faithful Christ will enable you to live with an open hand, no longer having to grasp for things and make your future secure. It also will guard you against future hidden dangers. You see that in verses 12 and 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. 
Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, what is the obvious difference between the way Lot made his decision and the way Abram made his decision earlier in this passage? There is no altar in Lot's life. Abram, remember when he came into the land? He's come off of a great failure. And so he returns to first things. He goes back to church. He goes back to Bethel. He goes back to that altar where God called him, and he says, in effect, what do you want me to do? Lot doesn't consult the Lord at all. Lot saw and Lot acted. He never consulted the Lord. It's a very simple point that the way you avoid hidden dangers is by consulting the Lord. It's not that you're never going to suffer, but you can avoid a lot of trouble in life if you just ask the Lord what He wants you to do. And you ask the Lord, obviously, in personal prayer, and you ask the Lord by reading your Bible. You also hear the Lord's voice very clearly by being regularly in worship because God concentrates His directions to us in corporate worship, and He gives us the enabling power of the Spirit, especially as He confirms that Word to us in the, in the Lord's Supper. He meets us in an objective and in a, in a, in a physical and an emotional way that gives us clarity. And then there's another part to finding the Lord's will, and that's just consulting godly people. He had Uncle Abram right there. Uncle, uh, Uncle Abram, uh, what do you think I should do here? You know, on the, on the, over in the west, well, that's a, that's a really uh, peaceful-looking piece of property. But, you know, here over uh, toward the east, I mean, this is where things are happening. Uh, this is where the economic engine is. This is where future is. What do you think here? I, I think that's where I want to go. And Abram could say, let me tell you the last time I made a decision by sight rather than by consulting the Lord. I nearly destroyed my family. The way to gain wisdom is, is not just um, living on your own. It's hard for us as men especially, proud men, to ask other people for advice, ask other people for counsel. We have the delusion that, uh, you know, right between these two ears is the locus of all the great genius of the world. And uh, if anybody would just ask us, they would readily find that out. Only our wives know the truth. But the Lord says, I want you to, I want life to go well with you. And it is impossible for you to know yourself accurately without other people giving reflection to you. Young minister called me yesterday and and said, uh, I'd had him, as a prof- had him as a student in seminary, and he said, um, he said, I'm tired of seeing ministers make a wreck of their lives. I'm tired of seeing my friends. He said, it seems like my friends uh, ultimately have uh, one of two choices. It's either suicide or moral failure. There's got to be another way. How do we, he said, how do you How do you learn yourself? How do you get an accurate view of yourself and reach out and find help? It's a searching question. 
How do you know yourself? You can't know yourself from the inside out by yourself telling you who you are. I don't know about you, but I, if I can constantly consult myself about who I am, I end up in one of two places. Mostly I tell myself how great I am, or I tell myself how horrible I am. And it takes God's Word, the promises of the gospel, and it takes God's people saying to me, you know, you're really not as great there as you think you are, or this is what the Lord is doing in you even if you can't see it. So seeking Christ's faithfulness, seeking God's Word brings sight and helps you avoid hidden dangers. And you find God's guidance by His Word and by prayer, by worship, and by godly counsel. Lot is the tragic proof that, um, of what happens when you don't ask his counsel. One time I asked that man, that elder that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, uh, I had made a, a terrible decision. It was just a really dumb thing that I led the church into, and we were mopping up afterwards, and we were after it, and I was meeting one day for, with him for breakfast, and I said, why in the world didn't you tell me that that was a dumb thing? that I should not have made that decision. Why didn't you tell me that that was going to be a dumb choice? And he said, you didn't ask me. I made sure I asked him everything from then on. You avoid hidden dangers by the, keep fixing your eyes on the faithfulness of Christ, and that is your eyes are fixed. Your, that, that focus is aided by God's Word, His means of grace, and other people. Thirdly and finally, verses 14 to 18 show us that when our eyes are fixed on the faithfulness of God realized in Jesus Christ, then we have boundless blessings ahead. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, For all the land that you see, I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, any of you who have been to the land of Israel know that when he sees this land, it's not a whole lot of land. It's a very narrow sliver of land. What, 35 miles at wide at its widest point, a little bit longer, north and south. But just within a very small radius around the Sea of Galilee, God has done most of the works, the mighty works of redemption. It doesn't take a lot of land. It doesn't take a lot of resources for God to change the world. So... Lot took what was most pleasing to the eye, Abraham took what was left, and God has made it that place into which he has fought all of the major redemptive battles and brought the Lord Jesus himself. And in that tiny place, Christ came and lived and died in our place. He was raised to life. Could Abraham have ever dreamed 
of the blessings that would come simply by putting his faith in the faithful God. Could Abraham have ever written the story as great as this? Could, could Abraham have ever dreamed that by simply trusting the Lord and saying no to what he could see and what he could imagine, that you and I would be here? That millions upon millions upon millions of people around the world from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would be saved by His greater Son, Jesus Christ. And could you ever imagine using a man like Abram to bring that kind of bountiful blessing? Abram, you know, Abraham is, um, of course, he's, a, he's an honored figure in Scripture, but he's, he wasn't a great guy. Like I said, he was an idol worshiper. He was a materialist. <clears throat> when, he was, when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go into the Promised Land, he bogged down in Haran because he had so much stuff, and God had to call him again. He lies about his wife. He sets a poor example for his son. Abram's constantly doubting the Lord. And on the heels of this most profound failure of lying about his wife, being willing to sacrifice the purity of and safety of his wife in order to secure his own, uh, his own uh, reserves. On the heels of that, I want you to notice what God says to Abram and see if he doesn't say the same to you. Verse 14, you wouldn't see this in your English Bible. <clears throat> but when our text says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, the voice of the verb implies this. Abram, please. Please look. Here's the God of the universe, the great God, our Savior, the God whom Abram had denied, who stoops down and says, Abram, please, let's come in a new direction. Let me fulfill my promise to you. It's not because he's dependent on Abraham to follow him. It's not because God says, I don't know what will happen to my self-esteem if you don't follow me. It's not that God says, I'll be a laughingstock among the gods if you don't follow me. It's not that at all. It is the graciousness of a redeeming God. Something like this is when my children and I uh, played ping pong at first, you know, we didn't play uh, points like you hit it to your opponent and if they miss it, you gain a point. It was rather our competition was, let's see how many times we can keep the ball, just keep the ball going. But then we had another special rule. It was that when the ball fell off the table, we didn't start over. We just picked up where we left off. And we would get up to 100. But it would, one, two, three, boing. Where were we? Oh, four, five, six, boing. Where were we? Seven, eight, nine. It's the way a compassionate God deals with us too. 
okay, Abram, where were we before you did the stupid thing in Egypt with, with Pharaoh? Okay, let's go back to Bethel. Let's start over. Abram, please, come with me. Let's start over. And to you, brothers, he says to you this morning, where were we before you did that stupid thing? Where were you before you were, where were we before you, you, you lost all perspective and you're, you're, you're totally flummoxed and, and not, don't know what to do? Where were we before you were so captivated by this lust? Where were we before you were overwhelmed by anxiety and despair? Okay, let's start over. Let's pick up where we left off. Please, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Whatever yoke you're going to take on yourself or from the world, it's going to crush you. Please, come with me. I'm a gentle master of your soul. Look by faith at me. Take your eyes off the waves. Step out of the boat with me. Do that, my friends, and life will be a blessing. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Father, every one of us looks, including the pastor, looks at the past, distant past, maybe just as fresh as yesterday, and we recognize our gross failures. We recognize our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And we realize that in succumbing to those things and choosing sight over faith, we always make a mess of things. We never feel better. We never flourish. People around us never thrive. We thank you this morning that you come ever so gently to us. When you deserve to, when we deserve your judgment, we deserve your rejection. You would have every right to prescribe a painful process of coming back into your good graces, but all of that has been taken away by the suffering of Christ. And He with His scarred hands comes to us. And wonder of wonders, He says, please look up. Look up and reclaim all of the promises I've made to you in Christ Jesus. Help us to start over today. No matter how many times we've started over before, help us to start over to live by faith and a good and gracious Savior and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's men said, Amen.